of a series uh, titled Desiring God and His Glory. Desiring God and His Glory. Um, to, to kind of sum it up, we're taking an up-close and personal look at a very important piece of scripture um, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. It's the last part of Revelation, the last part of the Bible. In those chapters, we are given a description of God's ultimate plan for the universe. And as we look at that in chapter 21 and 22, we kind of now, we kind of see, okay, that's God's ultimate plan. What does that mean for me? What are the implications for me and you today here in 2015? Okay. Um, so that's kind of uh, what we have been looking at the last few weeks, where we're going. Last week, in particular, we learned that God... He's not as interested in our human achievements as we'd like to imagine. Okay? He's not as impressed as our, you know, maybe our bosses or recruiters or HR people um, at our, in our human achievements. But he is actually more interested in your inner heart than maybe we'd like to admit. He's very interested in our inner heart. Um, and so that was kind of last week, right? Today, we follow that message up with, okay, if God is interested in that inner heart character, today we're going to talk about, well, how do we develop that inner heart character? How can we nurture that? Um, and what does that look like, and how do we do that? So as we do that, we're going to uh, cover three points. Number one, the Bible gives us um, a description of that inner character, um, it's called holiness, okay? Holiness, that's the word. And we'll kind of unpack that word because I know that when you hear the word holy, it's like, oh, you know, like we think crazy things. So um, that's number one. Number two, the second thing is, um, as we think about holiness, the struggle of trying to be holy in a very unholy world, right? There's a tension, there's a struggle. Um, and number three, um, the solution to that struggle. So there's a struggle. So then what is our recourse? What solution? What hope do we have um, as we struggle with that? You know, as we struggle to be light in dark. Uh, there's that struggle. What's a solution? Okay, so those are the three things. Sounds good, right? I hope. Yeah, makes sense. Um, let's get started here. Um, let's look at Revelation 21, and you, if you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles in, the, in some of the back of the chairs, and you can look at the very last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. I don't have the page, so if anyone gets here, go ahead and shout it out for, for the benefit of everybody else. What was that? 1041. Thanks, Danny. Okay, so Revelation 21, and we're going to uh, read this in bits and parts. So we're going to start with 22, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, because the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. As we look at those verses there, what it's kind of doing is it's giving us a picture, an impression, if you will. Any uh, art majors here? It's, a, it's an impressionist kind of uh, thing of, of God's holiness. And so, as you see, I have a whiteboard here. I thought it'd be kind of fun, because um, I'm a guy, actually, and it helps me to see things if I want to learn about something, and, and maybe some of you are like that. But here, you know, we're, we're talking about, he, he's, he's describing a city. Okay? He's dry, describing something physical. And so let's, let's kind of, <laughs> I'm going to do my best to, I hope, you know, God doesn't strike me down with lightning. But, <laughs> no, he wouldn't do that. Um, let's, let's just say that's, that's, the, that's God, okay? Um, you know, we're not supposed to make a graven image, but it's just kind of a, 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 represent, a mental representation. It says that there's no temple. There's no temple in the city. This is interesting because everywhere prior in the pages before, there is some, some embodiment of God's presence. Before the temple, there was what was called like a, it was a mobile temple, what was called the tabernacle. Okay? And then the people were like, hey, let's build a temple. Um, David said that, right? And so he built, they built, uh, his son built a temple and that got destroyed and they built another one and later on that got destroyed. But, it says here, it's saying to a people who are expecting a temple, there's no longer going to be a temple. Now, why is that? Because the temple was where God's presence was. Well, hey, if, you're already, if God is there himself, what need is there for a temple, right? The temple becomes obsolete. So there is no temple because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So we got God and, you know, we got the Lamb. <laughs> Bad. Do, do sheep have tails? Yeah, they have a little fluffy tail, right? That looks like a wolf, but really it's a lamb, trust me. Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, there we go. Yeah, good idea. Um, and of course, the lamp, it says the lamp is the lamb. So there's like this, you, you look, there's a, couple, a key word here that appears multiple times, glory, right? So there's like a glory that's coming off of, of God. Um, the technical word is Shekinah glory. It says Shekinah glory, the glory that only can be evinced from God himself. And then the, that's coming, the, the light, the glory is coming from, it says the lamp is the lamb. And of course the lamb is Jesus Christ. He is the lamb of God, right? right. Can you see that? Probably not, but it's there. <laughs> and it says the city has no need of a sun or a moon because... This glory, because God is physically there, so therefore, um, therefore, there is no need of a light anymore. He is the light. All the light that the city needs, he provides. He's like the nuclear reactor that provides the grid, the energy for the grid, right? And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth, kind of reminds me of uh, Lord of the Rings, right? The kings of all the earth will bring their glory into it. So, again, my poor uh, 
artistry or representation. Here's like kind of, you know, if you will, a road, and, and here's a king, all the kings, and they're bringing their glory. They're, they're bringing their glory as they're, and, and there's a procession of kings. I'm not going to draw bunch of kings but you can imagine there's a procession of kings and they're bringing their glory into the city and its gate is always open because look it says the gates will never be shut by day but they're oh by the way there's no night so that means it's always open the gate is always open for those who um, can come in and bring in their glory and bring and it says there the nations the nations of the earth right they will bring into it the glory and the honor so people of all skin color, people of all tribes and tongue, people of all creed, people of all uh, you know, Christian creeds, they will all enter into this place and they will bring their glory and honor to God. <coughs> so as we kind of see this, this picture, um, and of course, this, you know, this is nothing compared to the reality, but it kind of gives us an, a sense of like what's actually happening, right? There's stuff that's happening. There's kings going in to the gate and, and giving glory. We see this, this picture, and, and that whole picture is, is kind of a reflection of, of holiness. Now, remember the first point I said was we want to describe that in character that God is interested in. He's not interested in your achievements and, you know, your GPA, you know, yeah, do your best and all that, but really, he's more interested in your heart. And so, this is a picture of, of God's heart, his plan, okay? Another word for that inner heart is, is holiness. So, let it, let's define holiness. Um, you've heard me use this, this phrase, inner heart, character, that's really, I guess, our way, or me and Pastor Susung, um, a more kind of understandable way, teased out way of, of expressing the same word for holiness. Okay, holiness. Now, the Hebrew word is, you know, just for fun. There won't be any pop quiz or whatever. <laughs> but the Hebrew word is kadosh. I'm going to say that to your neighbor. Kadosh. Kadosh. Uh, all right, very good. You, you learned a Hebrew word today. And that means holy. That's actually the Hebrew word that appears in the Bible where we in the English Bible see the word holy. And what that means is set apart. Literally, it means set apart. Set apart. So <laughs> another kind of visual representation of that would be like here's something over here and here's something you know, over here. And it's set apart. It's separated. It's set apart. Okay, so what does this have to do with, with God and holiness? This is what it, why I'm, I'm bringing this up. Holiness, oftentimes when we hear the word holiness, we often think of like someone who's like morally perfect and, you know, hoity-toity and, you know, a holy moly guy and just like, Oh, you know, oh, you, know, you hear angels whenever they enter a room because they're just so pious and holy. So sometimes we get kind of like that negative, you know, ridiculous view of what holiness is. And, and uh, I, I want us to get rid of that because that's not really helpful to what understanding what true holiness is. Holiness, 
you know, that, that image is more about what they do and their morality, right? A moral person. Holiness is less about what you do and more about what you are. Holiness is less about what you do and more about what you are. And the actions, you know, they come after the being. So holy actions come from a holy heart. The word holy, in fact, is an adjective, right? Holy, grail, holy, spirit. That means that the spirit is holy. It means that the grail is holy. Um, holy temple. It means that the, holy, the temple is holy. But when do we ever use holy as a verb? It's not, right? It's not a verb. So we need to get rid of this idea that being holy is like, you know, that's holy. No. Holy is something that is in your heart. Now, what is that thing in your heart that is called holy? Because there can be a lot of different things in our hearts, right? Um, the Hebrew word for, for holy, kadosh, like I said, it means set apart. It's an adjective. And it applies to God in this way. Simply put, God, let's say this is God. God is God, and we are not. God is God, we are not. Very separate. It's very cut and dry, right? There's a set-apartness. There's a distinction between the two. Let me give you a few more um, examples. God is the source of life. Everything that is came into being through God. So he is the source of life. Everything else, everything else receives life from God. So he's the one through whom life flows. He's the source of the life. And then on the other hand, we and all the other things in the universe receive life from God. Nothing that came into being was came into being without God. Right, as John 1 tells us. So, we see how God is separate in that way. We see that God is, is set apart and, and, and other um, because he's without peer. He's peerless, right? He has nobody like him, right? Kind of like Stephen Curry. Anybody catch the game yesterday? I mean, the Warriors, the Warriors as a whole, yesterday I was so pleased because they played a flawless game for the first three quarters. I mean, they were peerless. I mean, and the score proved it. And, and on top, of, they won by 35 points, and, and they, were, they didn't even shoot the three-pointer very well, like they usually do. So they could have won by like 45 points. They were peerless. Now, if we can think about, uh, of peerless, you know, without peer, um, uh, you know, in terms of basketball team, now imagine God. God literally has no peer. There is none other like God. He is completely set apart. We, on the other hand, find ourselves daily competing with our peers, right? Right? We find ourselves contending and striving against our peers, our coworkers, trying to impress our supervisors and our clients, you know, trying to get a better grade if you're graded on a curve trying to get the scholarship, trying to get the girl, trying to get the guy. We're striving against our peers, right? Because we're, we're on the same playing level, right? God, there's nobody on his playing level. He is without peer. He is completely, there's no other being like him 
anywhere else in the universe. Set apart. So I hope you're kind of getting now this idea of that's what holy means. So see how different that is from like, I'm holy, I don't do anything wrong, right? So completely different from what the actual biblical word kadosh, holy, means. It means that God is separate, he's transcendent, he's above, he's, there's no one like him, nobody like him. The interesting thing is as we, uh, you know, going back to contending with our peers because there are many people who are like us, right? As we do that, we get filled with insecurities, right? One of, the, one of the big reasons that I don't do Facebook anymore is because I found that I would get insanely insecure every time I'd go on Facebook and I would see like my friends who just are living the life, they're like successful and they're, everything seems to be going great in their life. Like everything they touch, the gold, they're getting promoted, whatever, you know, everything at work is going great. And, uh, and so as I contend with my peers, I get insecure. So then what do I do? I look for those guys who I think are doing worse than me, right? And then, oh yeah, I found them. Yeah, oh look, I'm doing so much better than this guy, right? And, and all of a sudden, you think you're so much better. And all of a sudden, yeah, you know, I, he got me back in you know, high school or whatever, but now look at me. You know, I, I, I worked hard. I worked hard for everything I get, and now look at me. And I compare myself to that guy. And here's the funny thing. You know, you can either be insecure as you contend with your peers, or you can be proud. You can struggle with pride, right? I'm so much better. Why can't they do what I did, you know? That just means I'm a better, like I'm a better quality person, right? Because they, they couldn't do it, but I could. So you either struggle with insecurities, deep insecurities. Oh, they're so much better. Why does everything I do suck and fail and everybody else is doing so much better than I am and they're getting the promotions and their life is better and, and, or I'm so much better. Or maybe it's a little of both, right? Maybe in some areas you're insecure and in other areas you're very proud and, and struggle with pride and, and arrogance. God has no peers. He has no insecurity. He has no arrogance. Isn't that interesting? He's set apart. He's different. He's holy. He's kadosh. Kadosh, kadosh. And that's the basic biblical definition of holy. Okay? So, number two. Second point. Understanding that that's what holy really means, biblically, that's the character that God wants being set apart is it possible for humans to be holy? I mean, God is holy because he's set apart. He's, he's set apart because he's set apart. He's like the definition of set apart. But how about us? How can we be set apart? We're not like so great, are we? Maybe we are. And that's the, the title of today's sermon, right? Human holiness. Is it a real possibility or is it just a pipe dream? Just like some romantic idea that somebody made up like you know like the matrix you know some fantasy or is it really possible and that's what we want to kind of investigate and answer today look at chapter 21 verse 27 let's read that together if you would 27 but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay. 
so then that means, according to verse 27, all this is going on. People are the kings of the earth and, and the, the glory and the honor of the nations is being brought into uh, the city of God, right? But in verse 27, it says, kind of like, nothing unclean, right? Just, that's unclean. Nothing unclean, or nor anyone who does what is something unclean, you know, detestable or false. No, those things and those people who cling to those things cannot enter. You don't have to turn there, but in verse uh, 3 of the, the next chapter, chapter 22, it says, no longer will anything accursed in the city. So there's nothing accursed in the city. All things that are accursed are, are kept out of this perfect city. And that's a good thing, right? Imagine if you, it sounds kind of harsh, like anyone who's like, you know, done these things, we, you need to keep them out. But let's think about this. Let's say you clean your house and then your friend comes along and they have just been farming. And so they're covered in fertilizer and their boots and, and they're tracking mud everywhere. Would you want them covered in manure to enter your house? No. What would you ask them to do? What if they love you, what would they volunteer to do? Stay out until they get cleaned off and then come in, right? Because they don't want to ruin the house. Or let's put it this way. That's kind of like a, kind of a provincial example. Let me give you a better example. Let's say you live in a city where there's no more disease. You live in a city where there's no more corrupt politicians. No more cor corrupt law enforcement. No more drugs. No more bullying, no more suicides. You live in a world where there's no more taxes. You live in a world where there's no more hate. There's no more gossiping among friends and backstabbing, being backstabbed by people that you thought love you and care for you. No more being excluded from, from your friendships. Let's say we live in that kind of a city, okay, and let's say the mayor of this city, God, all of a sudden says, all right, we have these people waiting outside the gates who want to come into this perfect city. But here's the thing. They don't want to let go of their murderous intents. They don't want to let go of their rape intents. They don't want to let go of their abusive intents. They think lying is a great way to live life. They think cheating is a great way to live life. They don't care that they hurt relationships and use people on their way to get something. They just see people as resources and, and, and uh, commodities. Let's let those people in. What kind of a mayor would that mayor be? Kind of a foolish mayor, right? Right? Would we want our city to accept people who, given the choice to be washed and, and cleaned, they don't want to? No, they want to just bring it all into the city and ruin it for the entire city. The mayor, does he not? You, I think you'd agree. The mayor has a responsibility to the people in that city. 
and to that city and to himself to keep it this way. And it's not like the people outside don't have a choice. They do have a choice, but they just choose to hold on to those things. They choose to cling to those things. Well, okay, that's your choice, but you can't come in here because this is a place where we don't have those things anymore. We don't have disease and, and, and gossip and abuse. So we're not going to bring those things into the city. That's what verse 27 is saying. Now let me ask you this. Where are you? If we're honest with ourselves, we're here. Because it says, nobody who has done anything that is detestable or false will enter in. I'll be the first to admit that I've done plenty of detestable, false things. I've shared with you a couple of times how hypocritical I was as a pastor, as a Christian leader, I was a hypocrite. I was very false. I belong here. What about you? Can you honestly say before God, or can you honestly say, if you don't believe in God, honestly say in front of a mirror that you have never done anything detestable to someone else, you have never done anything detestable to you, you've never done anything false? I, I don't think so, right? And I'm not like looking down. That's just the human condition. We're flawed. So we belong out here. And so that brings us then to this, this problem, right? We, we want to be holy, but we're not. So we're stuck. So the question is, how can I, as an unholy person, be holy? It's, it's hard. It's a struggle. It's not easy. I mean, really, right? Do we, do we, do we always lie because we just want No, we lie because the alternative is something worse, in our minds at least, right? And so it's a struggle. Do we, do we act selfishly because we're always selfish? Well, sometimes, Right? But sometimes it's a struggle because I know I want to do, I should do this good thing for this person. I'm just I'm so tired or I don't have enough money this month. I just don't have enough time. And so there's a struggle. I want to be like a holy, reflecting God's care, but then I, I don't. And there's a struggle. Here's the first piece of good news for you today. God knows he already knows what a struggle it is to try to nurture that holiness in an unholy world. He knows what a struggle it is. In fact, he knows firsthand because he sent his son in Jesus Christ to walk the earth and to walk in our shoes, to walk a few miles in our shoes. And so he knows firsthand what it is to struggle with holiness in an unholy world, what it is to struggle as a light amongst darkness. In fact, in Romans, you don't have to turn there, um, and you can if you want, but chapter 7, 
beginning with verse 14, we find this gem. It's an absolute gem of a passage, and it includes these words. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am, but I am of the sinful flesh, sold under sin. You see, I don't understand my own actions, because I don't do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate to do. I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do the good, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like an inner dialogue that you have had in your life at some point? Man, I want to do this thing, but I don't end up doing it. And the thing that I, I know I shouldn't do, I like end up doing that. I don't know why. The fact that these words appear in the pages of Scripture means something very encouraging. It should mean something very encouraging to you and I. It means that God knows what it is to struggle. He knows. You're not alone in your struggle. He knows when you're faced with a fork in the road and you can decide this or you can decide that and you know that this is what should be done in this situation and this is not what should be done. He knows. He knows. It's right there in Romans 7. He already knew before you even got to that fork. He knows what a struggle it is and he understands. Is that encouraging? Is that encouraging to you? I hope it is. He knows. He knows your struggles. It's a wonderful gift that God gives us there in Romans 7. He's saying, I know, guys. I know what I called you to do is great, but I also know that it's hard. I know that. Okay? I'm not oblivious. I know. This passage kind of sounds like someone put a you know, I do the things that I don't want to do and the things that I hate to do is what I keep on doing. That passage kind of sounds like someone put a recorder right next to your heart, right? When you're having, like, let's say, an argument, a heated argument with somebody. All right, let me give you an example. Um, sometime, I love my wife. You know, Christy, we've been married. In fact, we just uh, celebrated this past weekend um, our 16th anniversary. And, you know, it's been... The 16, I just I, I recently told her these have been the best 16 years of my life, and I'm not just trying to like flatter her or whatever. Like literally, it's been the best 16 years of my life. Yet sometimes there are times where we just don't see eye to eye, okay? And so in those times when we're having like a heated argument, and you don't have to be married to to know what that's like, right? Maybe you've had a a heated argument with a friend or a parent or a sibling, right? And you all know as you're having this conversation, this heated argument with the person, you're also having another conversation, aren't you? You're having a conversation in your head of what you should say, what you want to say, and what you ought to say, right? Right? You have that inner dialogue. And it, for me, it kind of goes something like this. We're having an argument, and I'm arguing with Christy, and I think, oh, man, I know that I shouldn't say this next thing that I'm about to say, <laughs> right? But boy, do I really want to say it. I really want to give it to her. Because what she just said hurt me, and so I want to hurt her back, right? Counterpunch, Mayweather. Uh, right? 
But I know I shouldn't say it. But what the heck, I'm going to say it, right? Because even though I know that I shouldn't, even though I know that as soon as the words come out of my mouth, I'm going to like wish, I'm going to regret it, I'm going to wish that I had like a time machine to like go back in time and, and not say it, right? Even though I know all that, ah, I'm still going to say it. I just want to say it. The thing that I know I should do, I don't do. The thing that I hate to do, and it's just going to cause this argument, it's just going to add another two hours onto this argument, right? <laughs> you know, right? I'm going to do. I end up keep doing. Romans 7. That's how foolish we are. That's how false and detestable we are. We say we wish we had a time machine, but in, a, in fact, we do have a time machine, right? You can at least predict that much, right? That if you call someone a name, or if you bring up some past mistake that they made and you said you forgave them, but you didn't really, and you bring it up, oh yeah, remember the time, you know, or whatever. You know, it's, you have the time machine. You know what's going to happen next. And it's not good. We have the time machine, and yet we say, oh, if I had a time machine. What? If you had a time machine, you would just repeat the same sequence over and over and over. That's what happened. It'd be a curse. No, what you really need is not a time machine. What you need is a change in your inner heart. You need to nurture and grow in your holiness. And as that holiness grows, now you, are ha you have the power, you have the ability to do the things that you do want to do and avoid the things that you hate. Know what I mean? Does that make sense? All right, so how do we do that? Is that even possible? And the answer, I'm glad to say, is yes, absolutely. It is possible for us to nurture and become holy and be holy. How? Well, human beings, we are created uniquely. We created, look, God created us, right? But he also created trees, birds, fish, uh, mountains, right? The ocean. But remember how God is set apart from us because of the very quality of who he is? We, in the same way, are set apart from the rest of creation because in our very quality of being, in our essence, we are created with the image of God, in the image of God, something that none of these things in all of creation can claim. So you see, we're set apart from God this way, but we are also set apart from all these other things, trees, mountains, and birds, because we alone are created in the image of God. What does that mean? That means that when God created you, when God created us, he set apart, he set us apart to reflect his image. In other words, I know it's kind of heady, but let me bring it to practical level. In other words, when you and I walk around San Jose or Berkeley or Davis or wherever, 
if we're nurturing our holiness, we can walk around and people will see the glory of God reflected off of our lives. That's what God set us apart to do. That's what God wants us to be holy for, to be an image of God to the rest of the world. Does that make sense? Before we see verse chapter 21 that the nations and the kings they walk into the city and they bring their glory they're bringing their glory and we on the outside can now enter in as well How so? I thought nothing unclean can enter. Well, look at chapter 22. Look at verse 14. Let's read that together. 22, 14. Blessed are those who have washed their robes. Read that again. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Once we're washed... Of uncleanness, we're no longer unclean. Therefore, we can enter. How is it that we can be washed? By the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. That's the solution. So I presented to you this reality that we're struggling with holiness in an unholy world. It's not easy, right? The things that we don't want to do, we do. Things that we do want to do, we don't do. It's a struggle. So what's the solution? The solution is to become clean. And how do we become clean? God provided the way to wash our robes, Jesus Christ, his blood. That's what it means when we are washed white as snow. When the Bible says that, it's talking about the blood of Jesus washing us so that we can now participate and be citizens in the city of God. He doesn't want us to be out here. That's why he provides a way. That's why he sacrificed his own son to make a way. That's the solution to this struggle. And we're going to end today with this. The solution is twofold. That's the first part. That Jesus, his blood, you also see there in 21 and 22, it talks about the river of life. It's a river that washes, so there's like a river, and it flows, it says, from Christ. It says right there. It flows from him, and anyone who wants to can come and drink. And it says that whoever comes can come and take of this river, this water of life, without price. <laughs> He's giving it to you. He's giving it to me. Praise the Lord for that. Whoever comes can come and take of the water of life without price. That's his promise right there. 
okay, last thing. And I think if you're a Christian, you really want to listen up to this, okay? All right. Hey, you're, you're here. You've made it here because you've been washed. But the reality is, even after we become Christians, and if you're not a Christian, you may know some Christians, and you know as well as they do, they still make mistakes, right? So, you know, metaphorically at least, we're still, even though we're here, we're still kind of stumbling. We make mistakes, right? Some of you have been Christians for a long time, and yet you still make mistakes. So what does that mean? What do we do? What do we do with that? Are you tired of that? Are you dis- does that discourage you? When you make a mistake, what are some things that you do? I know what I do. I run away from God. I withdraw from my relationship with God. I don't want to deal with it, so I run away. Or you may just like rebel like full force and be like, well, I, I got my foot in. I might as well dive in now, right? So there are different reactions to when someone is post, you know, post-conversion, let's say, and they're making mistakes. There are different reactions and things that people do. Here's, if you're a Christian, listen up, guys. This is what I really want you to take away. If you're a Christian and when you make a mistake, this is what you need to do. That whole chapter is talking about us bringing something glorious into the city. You bringing something to God. Here's what you can bring to God when you make a mistake. Look at Psalm chapter 51, verse 17. It's very, very short, very, very simple. When you make a mistake, when we make a mistake, after we become Christian and we're struggling, what do we do? Psalm 51, verse 17 says this, The sacrifices that are acceptable to God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You see, all you need to do, as Revelation 21 and 22 describes this picture of people bringing their glory to God, Psalm 51 is telling us what you need to bring is your broken and contrite heart. And God will take that broken and contrite heart and he will transform it into something glorious. He will transform it into a perfect reflection of him. And when people see you and talk to you, they will sense the fragrance of God. That which is so other becomes very approachable and tangible in you. And all you need to do is offer your broken, contrite heart. What does contrite mean? Contrite means this. You offer no more excuses. A contrite heart offers no more excuses. A contrite heart shifts no blame. No longer are you saying, well, you know, my wife was being really annoying that day, so that's why I blew my top. 
because it's her fault. And my kids, they don't listen. They're always... Do- and my friend, he said he was going to take me to the you know, Warriors game, but he didn't. He took someone else. And that's why I have every right to be angry and bitter against him. And because my parents were so demanding and unreasonable, and that's why I'm so neurotic. Those things being as they may, no one's denying. But a contrite heart finally gets to the point where it's like, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's, it's just me and God. And I got to account for me. And I will offer no more excuses. I am this, and this is all I am. A contrite heart shifts no blame, looks for no more rationalizations. A contrite heart knows that all it deserves is its due consequence. You guys know the saying, if you do the crime, you've got better be willing to do the, the time. A contrite heart knows that. I messed up, and I deserve this. And a contrite heart then knows the only hope that it has is to just throw itself down before Jesus and say, you know, Jesus, you have no obligation whatsoever to forgive me or to be nice to me. I don't deserve it. Legally, I don't deserve it. But I'm appealing to your mercy. That's all I have. I don't have any merit. There's no reason for you to be merciful or be nice to me. And Jesus says in Psalm 51, 17, a broken spirit, a contrite heart that offers no more excuses, God will not reject. He will not despise. Instead, he will lift them up. He will take your broken and contrite heart and he will make you fly on wings of eagles. He will make you walk and not stumble. He will make you run into the city of God. Christian, when you make a mistake, as you're persevering in your endeavor and and desire to be set apart and to be a reflection of the image of God, as you're struggling with that over these 80 years of your life, and you make a mistake along the way. Don't turn away. Don't turn out of the city. Instead, like Revelation 21 says, bring, bring something glorious to God. What is it that you need to bring when you make a mistake? Bring no more excuses. Bring your contrite heart. Bring your broken spirit. Bring the dust of who you are and say, this is all I am, God. And now I, my only hope is, is that you'll be merciful. And God says, I will be merciful. There is no if, and, or but. I promise. He says that in Psalm 51, 17, a broken spirit, a contrite heart, I will not reject, I will not despise. Is that good news? I hope so. It is. Let's take some time right now. And we're just going to provide a time for you guys to pray. And, and as you pray, think about this picture. 